Beatles Breakfast Metal, episode 7. Um, we're recording this on the 15th of December, so as this will probably be our last uh, record of the year, we thought we'd do a, a mammoth uh, review of the year show. And essentially, because we normally cover albums, we thought the best way to do that is me and Rob have ranked our favourite albums of the year from uh, 10 to 1. And we'll just go through those in order. We'll split this into two shows, because otherwise it's going to get four hours long and <laughs> no one needs that. Um, yeah, so essentially we came up with a list of 10 albums by both choosing our own list of 10 albums and then we kind of combined them and slightly fudged that into a, a list. Also, this 1 to 10 is probably not all that accurate. We'll probably change our mind on it within about a week's time. <laughs> and there's still albums that haven't come out this year, which may be great, you know. Yeah, th- this is the thing, like... <laughs> I wanted to do it this year. We are being unfair to anything that pretty much came out in December because there's no way we would have heard it. So, so I mean, we'll include this period in next year if we do another one of these. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I saw some album of the year lists come out mid-November, so we're not, we're not taking the piss quite as yeah, much as, yeah. as possible. But yeah, before we jump into the uh, first band, I thought we'd just go through a couple of cool things that essentially can't be included on an albums list. Firstly, there's been some great EPs this year. Um, we had Gorguts Pleiades Dust, which is absolutely amazing, but I have no idea how to cover in this podcast because it's one 33-minute long song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really good, continuing on their kind of um, pretty much the same line as uh, their previous album, whose name's... Coloured Sounds? Coloured Sounds, yeah. yeah. Very, very similar sound. I think they've changed drummer out in the meantime. But yeah, it's really interesting and yeah, definitely makes use of the format of doing just one mm. long song kind of Crimson by Edge of Sanity style quite well. It yeah, held my attention the whole way through and didn't seem kind of prolonged or too pretentious. Yeah, I definitely all got managed to run that line amazingly well. Just really, really interesting, sort of very technical, very original death metal, which is really worth checking out. Uh, talking of pretentious, though, uh, in the last couple of weeks we had Death Swell Omega's uh, The Synergy of Molten Bones EP, which <laughs> pretty cool EP, pretty similar to kind of Previous Death Spell Omega releases, I think they, they've kind of started to settle into a formula now rather than changing things up. I was saying Rob earlier though, the only problem with this album is it has an orchestral sort of like orchestral noise intro, which is appalling. It, it, it sound it's like it genuinely made me laugh when I heard it. Like it sounds like a supervillain's intro music in a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, and um but otherwise, very good EP. And Rob sang earlier, um, was it Conjurer? Yeah, Conjurer's EP is definitely worth mentioning. It's only about um, 23 minutes long, uh, but it's really well recorded. It's a really nice mix of sort of doom, sludge, and bits of black and death metal. Uh, I talked about them in the Damnation podcast, and they should be releasing an album soon, um, from what their bass player was saying. But yeah, this is really worth picking up and checking out. Really good EP. Ah, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so outside of EPs, we've had a couple of really good like live DVD releases. I've got two recently. Uh, Leprous um, just released their live at the Rockefeller musical and, and the footage from that is incredible the sound as well is just perfect it's a wonderful DVD and, it, and it's one of those like normally I wouldn't massively be into buying music DVDs of the band so I'll just go see them live but this was a special show where they got their old drummer on mm. to play at the same mm. time as their new drummer Bard on a couple of tracks Ishan's there at the end yeah. like it's, it's a pretty um, yeah pretty impressive live lineup, and yeah really cool selection of songs nothing from the first album though I think they're kind of done with that now it's definitely worth getting but uh, like if you want a taste you can see some of the videos on YouTube uh, it's really worth watching yeah, amazing live performers 
Yeah, yeah, incredible. And uh, a similar vein of absolutely mad live show you'd never see anywhere else was Arion's Theatre Equation. <laughs> Aaron, a band I definitely want to cover at some point, but I don't think Rob's actually even heard their stuff. Particularly, no, I haven't heard a full album yet. Uh, which is quite a thing, because they're normally 100 minutes long. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so the Arion do these massive concept albums with multiple vocalists playing characters, and they decided to bring it together as like a stage show with all these famous vocalists including James Labrie and yeah yeah, a lot lot of other lesser known kind of power metal and what I hate to term but female fronted metal vocalists you'll know what I mean we need to find a better term than that for those (laughs) bands especially considering some of the bands we'll cover today which don't fit into that category (laughs) at all yeah um, (laughs) also we've had some really cool stuff in a load of bands recently reformed like We've been obsessing about them a lot recently, but yeah. Akakoka came back. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no full release yet, but we've heard two songs. They sound cool. Yeah, sound really good. So definitely one of my uh, predictions for 2017. Yeah, this is going to be a good mm, album. Definitely. Um, also, Norwegian Weirdos in the Woods have reformed <laughs> um, with a new vocalist who I think I not really know much. Of, I don't really know much of his stuff, but I think he was briefly in the Meads of Asphodel. So. Mm. Mm. This kind of shows what a weird route they're going down. <laughs> but yeah, they, they released Pure this year, which sort of just missed out on this list. But yeah, definitely worth uh, checking out. And um, brutal black metal band Archon, Archon in Faustus just announced they were playing Hellfest next year. So don't know if we're going to see more from them, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> Excellent, yeah. Uh, sadder news, I think we had a load of stuff disband. Um, mm. I think the, the biggest one was definitely... Agalock's uh, sudden... Yeah, yeah, Agalock have now disbanded. I mean, we've got two new bands out of it, both Pelorian and Corrada, which um, Pelorian have got some shows booked now at some European festivals, I believe, and um, Corrada are working on new studio material, which should be out soon. So definitely two bands to watch. I'm hoping this is sort of uh, Dave Mustaine being kicked out of Metallica, where we get two great bands out of this split. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, uh, it's really good to hear everyone involved is still going on and doing stuff, because mm. those guys are incredible writers. Definitely. Also, we've had Dillinger Escape Plan announce they're calling it a day after their last album, and Bolt Thrower, after the tragic passing of their drummer last year, mm. have decided to say it's done. Which is, is kind of, like, fair enough, and I mean... They'd stop releasing albums anyway, yeah. like after those ones loyal, they just said they couldn't write another one as mm-hmm. good, so mm-hmm. sort of stopped. Um, yeah, so that leads us into uh, first uh, first album of these top ten. So the first band we're covering today, um, number ten on our albums of the year, is Sub Rosa's For This We Fought The Battle of Ages. Now Sub Rosa are in in the vein of stuff me and Rob seem to get really into of doom but it's weird like these guys have a very strange take on doom where essentially they have guitar bass and drums building up these mammoth songs like often into the 15 minute realm Mm. in a quite a kind of more traditional doom kind of mold riff wise like very slow paced um, very heavy guitars but then their kind of weird take on it is they have two violin players who like improvise bizarre noise over the whole yeah, yeah. the whole project like sometimes playing violin quite traditionally sometimes just being absolutely bizarre with it yeah they, I think the particularly the violins and um, female vocals as well can create a really 
eerie atmosphere in Doom, which helps a lot, because a lot of Doom is quite basic, and that's great. I love a good basic Doom mm-hmm. band. But just adding these extra elements to it gives it a real sense of atmosphere, which I really like. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, Rob touched on the vocals. So the two violin players and the guitarist all do vocals, and they, they're they all very... Um, just very strange like techniques vocally, where they sort of are purposely a bit discordant with the music, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and it creates... They're very clean singers, and I'm sure could sing in a far more pop style if they wanted to, but yeah, they go for this quite unsettling, ever so slightly out of tune almost. Yeah, that's definitely what it feels like. Um, I I haven't got the ear to tell Mm. if that's exactly what's going on, but yeah, a really eerie atmosphere to a lot of the tracks. So uh, these guys formed in 2005. Uh, They're a Utah-based band, Mm. and they were formed by um, Rebecca Vernon, who's guitarist and vocalist, think she's the main vocalist and I know she's the main songwriter and then we have um, Sarah Pendleton Sarah Pendleton on vocals and violin and then they're backed up by uh, Kim Pack also on vocals and violin Andy Patterson on drums and uh, Levy Hanna on bass and yeah this album it sort of builds on what they've been doing for a while I first came into this band a couple of years ago with uh, their previous album More Constant Than The Gods mm. and they seem to have just taken that format and just just expanded on it slightly just doing a bit more with it I think um, they essentially record by writing all the riffs guitar, bass and drums and then the violin players just come into studio once that's all done and just completely fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> I think we get a sense of that in a lot of the albums we've picked. It's You take something like Doom Metal or Death Metal or something like that, and you add some new elements into it, and you get something that's completely different and feels like a different end product. And you know, it's very classical Doom, and we've got loads of really long songs. I mean, the shortest one we can actually play for you is about seven minutes. <laughs> yes, and yeah. the rest of the songs are all over ten minutes long. So it's really got that sort of traditional Doom structure, but really builds itself into just something a little bit different, a little bit weird, and therefore really interesting. Yeah, and like sort of to add to all these soundscapes, there's a hell of there's like seven guest musicians on this. We have a saxophone pop in at one point, which will be in the track we're playing at the end. Um, quite a few extra backing vocalists. One backing vocalist credited with noise. <laughs> so, uh, also flute, French horns, extra guitars. It's quite a... Um, yeah, it creates quite a powerful sound. Like I found this album and actually most of their previous releases to be quite unsettling. Like, there's some... Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll come back to that with other bands as well. There's a lot of, like, Oathbreaker, another great example we'll cover later, of another band that are really unsettling, but they they do it in different ways from a different point. So this comes from a really straight doom point and then adds all the stuff on top and then just feels a bit weird. (laughs) But it's, it's, you know, the idea that not only guitars can sound heavy, there are loads of other instruments that can sound heavy. Um, There are some great examples of brass sections in bands like Haken, but, you know, using all sorts of other instruments to get a heavy sound, like, really is, is great, and more bands should experiment with this yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's something I find quite disappointing in metal, that you don't see that many bands breaking away from the guitar, bass, and drums formula, mm. which is cool. I mean, guitar has to be one of the best instruments in existence for being able to do infinite yeah, amount of yeah. things with. I, I mean, people definitely shouldn't get rid of guitars, but you can always supplement them with something else, and, like, this album proves that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Rob touched on it, but like uh, lyrically, this is a. Like, previously, they were very metaphorical. Now, I'd say it's a bit more on the nose with this album. Like, they're kind of quite political lyrics, normally, yeah, very angsty and very 
like kind of bitter and I believe this album is based on a book um, a dystopia novel said so on metal archives um, okay. from I think the 1920s <laughs> so I, I think that's the idea but it, but in terms of lyrical content and stuff the thing that's really worth talking about is um, the music video for Troubled Cells <laughs> yes. which is the final track yeah so this is um, so effectively Troubled Cells has this kind of the lyrical theme seems to be very much about it's kind of Veiled in a lot of metaphor, but it seems to be about the non-acceptance of um, uh, gay children, and mm. and then the music video for this like kind of hammers this point over the head by opening with a quote about the massive rise in suicide rates yeah. in Utah. And yeah, particularly talking about I think it was the Mormon Church in Utah. It's a really powerful video. It's really worth watching, uh, and the song is perfect for it you know it has this really depressing sort of eerie air to it but at the same time it has the power that comes from a, you know, a true doom band yeah and that much like say Ahab who we've covered in the past these guys are masterful and the song we're going to play Troubled Cells really shows us are doing these build ups that will go on for four or five minutes mm. and then mm. just hammer home like with this one it's quite like kind of subtle kind of cleanish guitar work and quite tone back drumming and then just explodes with all the vocalists coming in yeah, for this yeah. really powerful ending. Um, you have some some tracks where they quite vary up low, so Killing Rapture, the track before, actually has some really fast drumming in the middle. Like <laughs> It does properly move into this kind of um, yeah very quick double kick beat with the violins being quite normal in this track, mm. almost used in a kind of lead guitar, like more standard lead guitar sense, rather than if you listen to Despair as a Siren, the intro, uh, well, intro is 15 minutes long, um, <laughs> the first track on the album, they use the violins, but I think the way they're doing this is like plucking the bits at the top of the head of the yeah, guitar, yeah. and it makes this really <laughs> sinister noise, but mm. it's, yeah, it's just a very, <laughs> yeah, just very complex and interesting use of it. With the with uh, the lyrics, we've got like I think for me the song that really stood out as having very cool lyrics was the second track, uh, "Wound of the Warden," which is just mm. a a kind of some kind of character who's ruling things, ranting about how <laughs> it's so difficult that no one notices that that um, they're doing good, but it looks bad, <laughs> but in a very bleak. <laughs> And depressing way, lyrics like yeah. "choice is too precious to be wasted on vermin." <laughs> I, I really like the lyrics of "Troubled Cells" actually, and I can't recall the exact lyrical passage, but it's something about saying that this can't be a religion of good if it requires burning people at the stake <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that was really, really good. Um, the, these these guys have always had a knack for very powerful lyrical phrasing like mm. the previous album um, the first track The Usher which is a, effectively like a suicidal love song to death which mm. is has just some amazingly powerful yeah, memorable lyrics track. which I think is actually fairly rare for Doom really I, like a lot of Doom bands I'm quite into can't say I know all that much of their lyrical content. Yeah, or, or you have the sort of you know it because it's silly in a sort of Reverend Bizarre style <laughs> way. Yeah, Reverend Bizarre, <laughs> I know all the lyrics. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the other thing that I feel this album kind of raises, and you you rarely get this with metal because often it's not quite as affecting as this. But I would genuinely suggest with this album, if you're feeling like down and depressed about stuff, do not listen to this because it will make you feel awful. Like. They are so good at kind of conjuring an emotion 
that this like the depressing, oppressive atmosphere they've created on this. You've got seventy minutes of no escape from that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of doom albums that are quite nice to wallow in. You know, some Candlemas or something is often quite a good thing to listen to because it's got some great riffs in it. I'd agree. This is this album is just really sad, and 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 that's great. That's exactly what it's aiming for. But um, yeah, listen to it when you're in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, they they do very much nail that atmosphere they're going for, which is, is really cool. Mm. Um, yeah, the only real criticism I have of this is. It's, from the previous album, they seem to have slightly upped the song length, and in particular, Black Majesty, which I think is the longest track on the album, does feel like it's a bit too long. It doesn't have quite enough variation to justify a runtime over 15 minutes. Yeah, I think so. With most of the songs pushing over 10 minutes, it takes a lot to justify that time on almost every song on the album. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd agree with you. Probably could have been a little bit tighter, a little bit more streamlined. Yeah. Or probably true of almost every album. Oh, yeah. Name, but, uh, Very true. I think with Doom, though, you especially have that temptation to... Um, to just let the riff ring. Yeah, yeah. Just keep going. <laughs> yeah, just go on forever. Like, I find Esoteric are a band who always do kind of... There's about five minutes on each of their albums of just guitars feeding bands, which <laughs> the, I'd say they don't need yeah, quite that yeah. much. Anyway, so from this album, we're going to play the final track, Troubled Cells. Listen to this now, but I definitely advise go watch the video because it's the best way to experience this song.
Okay, so um, album number nine on our list is Ishan's Arctis, which we actually covered all the way back in episode one, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But we loved it so much, it's made it to number nine on our list. Yeah, this is. We're not going to go into too much detail. This is one of the few that we have covered before, unfortunately, because we did a lot of new releases that are some bound to end up on this this list. But yeah, so this is the sixth Ishan solo project album, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, as we said before, essentially, it's quite a good mix of everything he's done before. We have like some of the experimentation of the previous album, which was particularly weird. Yeah. Um, You've got some of the kind of more atmospheric stuff, like after, especially um, the track where uh, Jürgen from Shining does get saxophone. Oh yeah, Crooked Red Line, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I'm liking how Jürgen has basically become a member of the band now. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, well, and then you've got the straight up old school King Diamond worship of, of Until I Do Dissolve with these fantastic riffs which just sound like they're from Merciful Fate. Yeah, 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 which um, after hearing many, many years ago the cover of Gypsy from mm. uh, Empress First, like one of their early demos or something, yeah, it's great to see yeah. Ishan have a go at just doing a Merciful Fate mm. song. But it's, it's a great album, it's branched out into all the sort of weird areas that Ishan does, but it still manages to keep a really strong core with songs like uh, Disassembled, which are just really straight sort of Ishan's weird take on black metal style songs. Yeah. Um, and it's got some great guest performance as well. Uh, Matt Heafy's on it um, <laughs> in Mass Darkness, proving that he's really interested in some really cool music. Um, and uh, Einar Solberg from Leprous is on the final track, which is an incredible. And the first track, track as well. And, yeah, he is on Disassembled, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, when we first reviewed this, it was pretty recently out, and I think mm. we were pretty excited about it. Has it changed in your view since then? So not enormously. There are a few songs which I don't find myself listening to that much. Mm. Um, But they're relatively few, so I'd probably say maybe uh, Pressure um, and My Heart is of the North. I've listened to less than all the others. Yeah. Um, But I still think the album holds up really strong on a full listen. Um, Mm. And maybe they're weak songs on this album, but this album has a host of really strong songs, so I don't think that's a real weakness. No, I'd say after giving it a bit more time, I'd probably rate this as about like the third album in the Ishan's catalogue of solo releases. Like after I think was the perfect peak and uh, Angel or Angle, however you say that. Yeah, Yeah, that one I thought was equally brilliant. This is just coming in just below that, like. So the fourth album was a bit more of the same and slightly disappointing mm. on that level. Um, and yeah, like Urban Tower, or whatever, however you say it. Um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was just too weird. Like, mm. I enjoyed it, but, but some of those kind of improvised noise tracks are not something I revisit all that regularly. Yeah, I'd probably still, I think I still think After is the pinnacle, as you were saying. I'd probably rate this similarly to Angle for mm. different reasons. Um, but I think this is a really tight, really great showing, and I can't wait to see some of these tracks live if we manage to catch Ishan at some point. Yeah, because we did um, we did get one song off this. I think it might have been My Heart. It was of My Heart is of the North, yeah, at um, Bloodstock a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely hoping uh, he hits the UK on his next touring cycle. Mm. Um, so, yeah, from this album, we've decided to play... Previously, we played Celestial Violence, the epic closer. This time, we're going to go for the electronic weirdness of Frail. Yeah, yeah, great song.
Okay, so um, the eighth album on our list is from Opeth, and this is Sorceress, their most recent release. So this continues in the sort of vein of the prog direction they've been going on since Heritage. Um, so it's a similar idea to Pale Communion that came before it. And I sort of, I expect Opeth to shatter my expectations of everything whenever I get a new album. So at first I was a little sort of, oh okay, this is the same thing that they've done before. But giving it some time and giving it some more listens, it's still really good. Everything they do just has this level of quality and this level of sort of music writing which no one else can manage to do, it seems. So it's the, it's the same sort of thing as before, but again, it's top quality stuff. Yeah, so essentially we, we've not covered Opeth on this podcast before, and both me and Rob are pretty huge fans of their mm. stuff, I think. I don't know, have you heard all their albums? or Not all of them, um, but I'm a yeah, huge Opeth fan. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessive to the point I've heard <laughs> literally everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it probably should cover it. Like In general, the move from, from Watershed to Heritage, obviously, was kind of quite surprising, although... I think you sort of reading a lot of interviews at the time, you could kind of tell Opeth were going to go that way one day. Oh, definitely. I think, yeah, I think if you knew anything about Michael Ackerfeld and everyone else involved with Opeth, is that they're massive fans of old prog music. And mm-hmm. at some point, they were going to try something out like this. Uh, and you can see leanings to it in all of the really heavy Opeth stuff. It's incredibly progressive music and lots of influences from King Crimson or Genesis or all of these weird old uh, bands. Yeah, like weird, um, very obscure 60s and 70s prog bands like Mellow Candle, who I've checked out since and are really cool, but I've <laughs> never even heard the name before they sort of reference them as an influence. Um, I must say, Heritage, although I don't think I was bothered with the fact it wasn't a death metal album, I didn't massively get into it. I've never been that huge on Heritage. It's it's got a couple of good moments, um, but I and you know it's it's difficult when you make such a transition. And the backlash that they got was completely undeserved <laughs> for for what ultimately was perhaps a little boring album. But you know, it was, yeah. it was st- still still not too bad. It's not a terrible album. But after that, they came out with Pale Communion, and I was sort of thinking, oh yeah, they've really got this. I really liked Pale Communion. So Heritage was quite a sort of disjointed affair. It was like trying quite a lot mm. of different ideas, and it didn't have the best flow. Whereas Pale Communion, they sort of really tightened up the formula, and far more in the vein of Damnation, where yeah. the album really flowed smoothly, and you... Like the tracks sounded like they were meant to be on the same release. Yeah, and different and the difference between sort of damnation and pale communion. Pale communion and these other albums, Heritage and Sorceress, come it from this old prog sort of aspect. Whereas damnation was a bit more stripped back, had still a lot of weirdness in it, but a little less and fewer nods to this old progressive um, rock. And Sorceress sort of continues in this vein. Yeah, I'd say Sorceress. They've kind of gone a bit more mad than. Um they had on Pale Communion yeah, so yeah. it's an 11 track album with a lot of sort of weird ideas thrown in there like a couple of instrumental tracks which mm, is quite mm. kind of quite rare for Opeth like uh, track 7 for the 7th Sojourn is like a 5 and a half minute instrumental I mean we've previously had stuff like Patterns in Ivy and so on mm. but um, yeah this, this is quite a powerful album overall like the, you've got the intro of Persephone which is just basically Opeth showing off their mastery of just playing two acoustic guitars. Like, <laughs> they are so good at that. Mm-hmm. Like, there is something about Opeth the way they can just write these simplistic um, twin guitar instrumentals that are just inherently very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, I felt that had, like, almost had a slight kind of Morricone-type vibe to it. Like, just had that weird sort of Western, like, yeah. Wild yeah. West film kind of atmosphere. <laughs> and then that builds into the first single from the album, the kind of song I think, 
pretty much everyone would have heard by this point, the Sorceress, which starts with but the main change actually it seems becoming more and more prominent in Opef is way more keyboards like yeah yeah which yeah again must be a nod to 60s and 70s prog yeah because it's real sort of prog feel with your sort of Hammond organs and stuff like that um it's also got quite a heavy riff in it Sorceress which I I was really pleased when I first heard it I thought yeah this this sounds really good I like bringing in those I mean it's not sort of uh, old Opeth heavy but it's it's quite it's a fairly heavy riff for an album like this and I quite like pairing that with the softer tracks the instrumental tracks and as we were talking about just acoustic guitar work as well it makes quite a nice contrast so yeah Sorceress opens with a kind of quirky weird sort of offbeat keyboard rhythm and then yeah as Rob says comes in with probably the heaviest riff on the album which mm. is like a real chugging down tuned guitar riff like and there's a few moments of this where essentially like uh, track 5 Chrysalis I I was listening to this earlier, and I was like, actually, if you switched out Michael's clean for his screams, it would work on this song. This, yeah, like yeah. These riffs are heavy enough they could be in that older kind of death metal-influenced Opeth. I think this is definitely a heavier album than Pale Communion, which yeah, was definitely. kind of um, far more of a kind of traditional sort of prog rock, prog metal mm. kind of sound. As we say, it draws on slightly wider influences, so it takes these sort of heavier riffs that Opeth have worked with before and makes them suitable for this sort of music, and has a few more nods to prog music and stuff like that, and some weirdness, some instrumental tracks. So it's sort of a pale communion plus in a way. Um, it's not quite as streamlined, but it does more. It has more variation, does more interesting things. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. There's um, like from track to track, this is quite. There's quite a lot of changes in pace, sometimes less so in the songs than you used to get. You don't have like that kind of drapery falls, yeah. suddenly it's heavy kind of moment <laughs> with this. And like Axe's drumming is way more kind of rock orientated than, mm-hmm. than you would hear, say, when he's in Witchery or Bloodbath <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, this album, the lineup's now been solid for three albums in a row now. Yeah, and I think so. I think it's like it's becoming very evident they're now very comfortable working together. There is mm, no mm. like they are a tight unit. Obviously, with um, Michael being the boss, uh, like <laughs> I think he, like the writing process, he very much like puts stuff together and then just brings people in. Although notably on this um, album, uh, track eight, "Strange Brew," the only like really long song on the album, is written by Frederick. Uh, the reasonably new guitarist. Yeah. And yeah, like, I don't know, you've not heard this track yet, have you, Rob? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so essentially, this album's on the list because of me, because Rob hasn't actually had time to get into it yeah, yet. Yeah, I've, I've given quite a few songs to listen to on it, but I haven't actually got a physical copy yet. So I um, haven't <laughs> yeah. listened to the whole thing in detail. Yeah, there was a glut of releases in the last <laughs> couple of months. Yeah, um, yeah so Strange Brews uh, starts off kind of like heavy quite a complex song and in the middle like descends into kind of um, you know those songs Black Sabbath would do on their early releases where it's like them sort of doing a traditional rock song like yeah. Sabracadabra kind yeah, of style yeah. I found it massively reminiscent of that in the middle that's cool that's very cool very weird direction for Opa <laughs> but I like that yeah Opa for one of those bands who have influences that you might never hear in their music but they're really into them and then one day they'll bring them in as they were big fans of um, David Bowie as well yeah, I, I, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to tell that from their music but they have this really diverse pool of influences which they can draw on when they need it yeah it's essentially like there, there's a lot of nods to different like but as much as like 
we've got the prog rock leanings. There is still a love of like classic heavy metal in here. There's mm. some really um, metal guitar work, but more more kind of traditional metal rather than the black and death stuff yeah. that you heard on their yeah. earlier stuff. Um, Michael's vocals as well was something I really wanted to bring up because they are getting better and better, which you, I guess he needs to really vary what he's doing with them because essentially they've lost the dynamic of the screams. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of unfair, really. It seems wrong that a man can be that good at harsh vocals and clean vocals and he just he seems to keep getting better. And I, d- I didn't know that he could. It's rare to see a vocalist on the like a band's twelfth album suddenly step up a notch. Like, yeah, yeah. And the, just the sheer variety of things he's doing with his voice now is quite incredible. Because effectively, you listen to very early Opeth. It's like he has a lovely, clean singing voice, but he's quite kind of one note. It's kind yeah. of uh, yeah, sticks in a style. And like back in the day, he'd always vary up by. Uh, bringing Steve Wilson in mm, uh, mm. to do like backing on Blackwater Park and so on. On this album, we have uh, Joachim Sal- Salbarg doing the backing vocals, who's the the keyboard player, who is credited with an incredible array of stuff on this album. <laughs> uh, keyboards, Hammond Organ C3, Mellotron, Fender Rhodes 88, Harpsichord, Grand Piano, Moog Synthesizers, Percussion and Vocals. It's <laughs> a great list. Yeah, I, like from the the kind of studio footage I saw, I think they had a lot of fun messing around with whatever equipment was in the studio. Because oh, they did um, they did a studio diary as well for yeah. this, didn't they? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely worth a watch. Like, I I mean, I'm an obsessive fan, so of course it's interesting to me. But mm. I feel Opeth are a very interesting band to watch how they write. Mm. They have quite mm. a kind of complex and involved process that way like Mike will bring these strange wrists to everyone and then sort of get pull everyone in on yeah whenever I listen to Opeth or whenever I catch Opeth it's sort of like you realise that no one writes music like this nothing sounds like Opeth regardless of what style they're doing no one really sounds like them at all so yeah definitely interesting to watch how they get on the way of writing hmm yeah, they, they are very, very weird in that of being such an influential band, but no one's really managed to take their sound no, that well. No. I can't think of many bands I'd describe as sounding like Opeth. Bits of Opeth, but they never get the full package. Mm. Which is a shame, because I'd love to hear another band effectively doing like Watershed Part 2. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be interesting. I was recently um, reading, um, like, they released a massive, like, photo history of the band with little bits of interview in it, and Michael was saying on that that he, um, he actually effectively wrote Watershed Yeah, Part I remember two. reading interviews about this, yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah, scrapped it because he thought it was crap. Yeah, well, as he was saying as well that um, around that time I was reading interviews about this, he'd, he'd had this whole bunch of material, but he just wasn't feeling it. And he wanted to do this prog stuff because that's, that's just what he felt like doing. Mm. And um, yeah, like, good on him. I'd have liked to hear that music. Um, but good on him for, you know, doing what is sort of true to his inspiration and what he wants to play. Yeah, and, like, and we still get the heavy tracks live as well. So oh, it's definitely. Not, it's not like that era of Opeth has completely died and been buried. Like, you, you still see Deliverance live. Yeah, and, and they can still play, and he can still scream just as well as ever. Yeah, after initially blowing his vocal cords out <laughs> on, um, on, I think it was the mass bloodbath tour they did quite a few years back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I don't know if there's much I want to mention particularly about individual tracks. We have um, the aforementioned uh, Seventh Sojourn. It's quite an interesting one of like, they've taken this instrumental in quite a weird direction. It sounds, I'd say, very reminiscent of like Mabul era Orphan Land in their kind, like very, 
you know, Eastern folk kind of sounding and yeah, just a really interesting change in direction. I've not heard mm. Opeth kind of explore that sound before. Um, and then we have like mellower moments like Will of the Wisp, which is again, I think one of the, the sort of single tracks. Yeah, I think it's got a lyric video. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, just a very good mellow Opeth track. Yeah, yeah, they're, definitely. They're, they're essentially getting incredibly good at doing those. And yeah, like very happy with like the fact Opeth have settled into this sound now. Like I've finally come to <laughs> accept Axe as like being a great drummer with this because I think I eternally was like, oh <laughs> yeah, but I prefer Martin. He kind of he was slightly better at writing drum fills. Yeah, I, was, I do really like Martin. Um, he's probably my favourite of the two drummers, but but Axe is great and uh, you know does fit this much more mellow style really nicely as well. Yeah, he's he's definitely really grown into his role, and he now. Yeah, just a full-fledged prog rock drummer in his own right. Like, yeah. He's not just a guy mainly known for projects like Witchery and Bloodbath, mm. who can blast like a maniac, but can also play prog all right. Yeah, yeah there's a hell of a sort of variation to play through. Um, yeah, so the song we decided to play from this album is track three, The Wildflowers. This, again, is just quite an odd song. It goes through a lot of movements, but and it has your standard Opeth, like... All the riffs are just slightly weird versions of things you think you've heard before. Yeah. And essentially quite heavy as well. There is some like fairly hefty detuned guitar work on this. And I think probably the best example from this album of Michael's new like just lip like um vocal abilities. He, yeah, yeah, definitely. He really goes for it on this song.
So number seven on our um, albums of the year list is a well, the only debut album I think on the entire list. This is a one man project by Van Zelenado, and it's a weird one. It, <laughs> it, it is definitely one of the, yeah. The, the album's called The Devil Is Fine, and it's um, uh, all played by I think his name Manuel Gad Gadjinux. I don't know how you pronounce the surname, sure. um, but yeah, he he's this sort of one man vocalist, guitarist, and weird like electronics user, mm-hmm. like half Swiss, half African American. And this album he's brought together, The Devil Is Fine, is a bizarre mix of genres. Effectively, it's kind of like 
old railroad kind of blues chants yeah. mixed with electronica and black metal. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal pairing. Uh, it really works to give an incredibly sinister atmosphere. A lot of it is this sort of um, chanting railroad blues and soul style thing. Mm. And then combined with suddenly out of nowhere there'll be a blast beat and Tremelo picked black metal style guitars. And it fits together incredibly well and gives this amazing sort of sinister atmosphere. Yeah, so Emmanuel has uh, described the sound himself as I just kind of yell satanic stuff in a gospel voice. <laughs> but yeah, he has this really rich, um, like gospel sounding voice, and he does these incredible what sound like they would be almost religious chants, but he's t- twisted them all to be about really... Satan and how great Satan is, and that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so the main kind of features of the album is this kind of he'll build up these chants with maybe a little bit of gentle backing music. And the really common thing, track to track, is that will suddenly give way, or just come in underneath, a really fast tremolo pit guitar, a completely kind of wordless black metal mm-hmm. scream, and yeah, like, um, very obviously programmed blast beats. Yeah. But I think that's all kind of part I of the th- I think it works, because yeah, you have this dips into sort of electronica stuff, which is something I'm not particularly familiar with. Um, but it, it, that means that the styles fuse really nicely because the black metal sort of has this electric feel to it because mm. it's programmed. And as well, we were saying, talking about how this black metal element comes in, sometimes it's quite overt in things like uh, Blood in the River. Yeah, and you yeah. get this huge crescendo, which is awesome. And then sometimes it's subtler and a bit more sinister. It sounds sinister anyway, but I quite like the subtlety on songs like Devil is Fine, yeah. where it just gently comes in in the background to this chanting and just gives this overtone of like Norwegian satanic black metal which is awesome <laughs> and, and and essentially the, the blues chanting side of it is really creepy as well yeah yeah it's it's the pairing of these two genres which on the surface level you wouldn't think would have anything to do with each other but they're doing this same sort of emotion this same creepy atmosphere with this sort of satanic edge to it which fused together like perfectly I really want to see more of this style yeah essentially um there was a group of demos before this album, which I haven't heard. Then he's thrown this album together himself, and I think he's said in a lot of interviews he's got a hell of a lot more planned for mm. for this style because this is a great debut. But I do feel there's rough edges to this album. It's like there could be you could be doing more with it. It could be tighter. Mm. It, mm. it could sound nicer. But then again, this sounds bloody great for a de- like a yeah, kind of first yeah, yeah. like debut album. They're kind of they. Like they're mainly known for being uh, under the musician name Birdmask, and like Birdmask essentially, I think was a band which he wrote stuff for by going on 4chan, yeah. the <laughs> awful <laughs> website, and just getting people to suggest two genres to him, and he'd come back a couple of hour, uh, mm. hours later with a song that's like a mashup of these two <laughs> two genres, and one of them was uh, like black metal paired with um, these kind of, I think he calls them. Uh, Written down. Oh yeah, like black metal paired with these spirituals, which is mm, how he mm. refers to these um, chants or clean vocal parts. Which is really cool because, you know, the origins of rock and roll, which became heavy metal, comes from blues sung by slaves in America. And bringing this whole thing back from this sort of this evolution all the way into black metal back down to blues and finding that, yeah, the two work. Like, they fit because there's this sort of musical evolution where they all stem from each other. Yeah, yeah. I find it quite funny, actually. A lot of, like, reviews and interviews I've seen of people sort of saying, oh, I'm really surprised, like, on paper this shouldn't work, I'm really surprised this works. 
And I don't know, to my mind, I always thought blues and black metal sounds like it should work. That seems like a pairing that would be cool. It's not many bands who've tried it. Like, uh, Phasm did for a bit, and that yeah, was kind of cool. Yeah. Now they've kind of come back and just gone in a straight kind of Watain direction, which mm. is a bit disappointing. But yeah, this is taking it to, like, a bizarre logical conclusion. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic pairing. And I'd love to see more from this band, and I'd love to see other bands incorporating this style within their music as well. Yeah, so uh, on top of the kind of the sort of song styles we sh- we've discussed, there's three um, sort of instrumental tracks on the album, Sacrilegium 1, 2, and 3, that kind of break, sort of come in as breaks in the flow of the album, which are bizarre things. <laughs> like, one of them is effectively a dance remix of The Call to Prayer. <laughs> Incredibly <laughs> blasphemous, but yeah. kind of awesome. <laughs> So he's not just ragging on Christianity yeah. with this one. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, two is like this kind of like creepy kind of like children's nursery rhyme type yeah, keyboard yeah. bit. And yeah, the final final one is again like a kind of weird sort of keyboard noise uh, outro. Beyond that as well, the last proper track on the album, uh, What Is A Killer Like You Gonna Do Here, is like just complete departure from everything else yeah. as well. It's, yeah. Him singing a more kind of like jazzy number with this, what I think is a kind of affected guitar to make it sound like a kind of double bass. But <laughs> yeah, it, it, essentially this would be quite a good Earls of Mars song. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. But yeah, he he really showcases his massive range of like influences and styles he can do on this mm. album. Possibly for a follow up, I'd like to see maybe a bit a bit more focused version of this. Yeah, I could definitely get behind that. It's quite a short album as well. Like None of the tracks are over four minutes long. There's only nine songs, so this is a really quick, easily digestible yeah. album. Uh, uh, easily digestible, I might <laughs> <laughs> warn against in some parts of it. But uh, yeah, it's really sort of groundbreaking in the things that it fuses together, which, you know, as we were saying, it sort of seems like it should work, but no one's really done it before. And this is an amazing testament to how well it does work when someone does. Yeah, so um, probably should discuss to uh, some extent, like, the imagery of this album is really interesting. Um, So the front cover is an image of a slave, like, uh, in a kind of, like, quite smartly dressed with the sigil of Lucifer painted over it and then also drawn over. And that's been, like, flipped to being purple and lime green, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sort of doing a bit of research on this, the slave pictured is Robert Smalls, who, if you haven't heard of, like, just look up... He's incredible. He uh, escaped slave who I think he worked kind of with the Navy um, on the Confederate side of the Civil War mm. for a while and escaped by stealing a ship. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so uh, like Manuel said in a lot of interviews, the kind of um, com- combination of themes he's going for is applying like the rebellion of black metal to the kind of... Um, to the kind of slave trade and effectively trying to see that from the angle of like mm. this is what it'd be like if they could rebel in the same way yeah yeah sort of uh, apply that kind of norwegian hatred of religion to the kind of christianity that was oppressing the slaves mm. in america there's a really thematic link there between the two which is yeah part of why it works so well mm. although essentially there's quite a lot of like I don't think the lyrics are particularly sort of deep. He said he's mainly wrote them by just chanting weird stuff in his kitchen, effectively going, oh, that sounded cool. Yeah, well, I suppose perhaps that is quite true to how a lot of these sort of chant-style blues, railroad music would, would be made. It would just be a chant that's catchy, and that's all you really need. 
Uh, I, I just love the sort of, you hear these chants and you think, okay, it's this sort of music. And then you hear it talking about how great the devil is and you think, ah, oh, okay, that's cool. I like <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun on that way. Would love to have been his neighbour overhearing him, right? Kind of <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Coming up with all this weird stuff. Um, yeah, so there's, there's also talk of like putting this together live. I think he's booked up for a few shows. No idea what he's going to do with this because he said he's not going to just do it touring with just like him, a guitar, and a laptop. So he's mm. probably going to bring a full band to the lineup. And he said he wants to get kind of stage show together, which is kind of in the vein of something like Ghost, having a real like powerful imagery on stage with it, which. Think would be essential to this kind yeah, of music. Yeah. Be really interesting to see how well this can be pulled off live because mm, mm. it's so like all like audio wise, it's so clearly a one man band at the yeah, moment. I yeah. I don't know how that's going to be spread out to a, a full band, but I'm really keen to hear. Yeah, that. really interested to see if we can catch any of this. Yeah, I think they're playing in the UK like once, but beyond that, there's some really cool um, sort of imagery going along with this, like I saw on there, I think it was on their Twitter page, they've made a Zealand or uh, Sigil of Lucifer's uh, brand, like a branding <laughs> iron. That's amazing. Which is, yeah, kind of incredible. Also, I realised I was a complete idiot listening to this, of, I just, like, for a lot of it, there's a percussive element in about three or four songs of a chain being like yeah, kind of rattled. Yeah. Yeah, I only worked out the imagery of that, like, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, they've released a music video for Devil Is Fine as well, which I haven't had a chance to watch yet. It was released a couple of days ago. Um, and I believe this is a sort of similar idea of a man connected to a bunch of chains and that sort of thing. So, yeah, again, just the theme is so strong with this. Yeah, album. effectively it depicts, like, a guy sort of breaking free from his chains by essentially invoking satanic powers. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it looks, looks pretty cool. Mm. Uh, yeah, I wonder if there's anything else particularly you want to cover with this. Uh, next year, Birdmask are releasing an album, so that could be Certainly cool. worth checking out, yeah. Yeah, definitely interested to hear more from this guy. He's very interesting kind of writer. Slightly worried of this. I don't know how much, and I do this quite often, I love this album just because it's so weird. I've not heard it before. Like, <laughs> Essentially, am I overly rating it because it's just completely original? But then again... Perhaps, but you know, that's how new things, that's how new genres and stuff are made, or new subgenres or whatever. So yeah, I think it's such a good pairing that it deserves the notoriety for just doing something which, you know, hasn't been done before. Yeah. So from this album, we're going to play one of the last tracks on the album. This is Blood in the River. A good guy's a dead one. A good guy's a one that brings the fire. A good guy's a dead one. A good guy's a one that brings the fire. Good love's a dark one. A good love's a one that Good love is a dark world. A good love is 
section is our sixth on the list is a band I've wanted to cover for absolutely ages because definitely much like Opeth they're a band I'm absolutely obsessed with this is Hammers and Misfortunes latest album Dead Revolution uh, released on Metal Blade Records um, so these these guys are again like actually in the vein of Opeth they're one man sort of band where he brings in a lot of other mm. musicians to add to his I think essentially almost written songs um, yeah, this is John Cobbett um, of ex Ludicra member and also in like sort of progressive thrash supergroup Vol. Yeah, yeah. With, along a good with description. Uh, along with your your singer and um, uh, Agalock's old drummer. Mm, yeah. Which um, so the, those projects are both quite heavy. Like one's very black metal influence, one's like far more kind of like hardcore influence. Hammers of Misfortune, on the other hand, are essentially just a kind of mellower prog metal band. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so this is their, their sixth album. Uh, it's been quite a while since, I think, 17th Street, their previous album, came out about five years ago. It's pretty old now. So they've taken quite a while between between albums. Um, the lineup is is always, I think for almost every album, has been a six-piece. With um, We've got Joe Hutton as just the main vocalist, John Cobber as guitar and like songwriting and lyric writing. His wife, uh, Sigrid Chi, who's does like piano and organ stuff for it. I think some backing vocals, although doesn't seem to be credited on this album. Possibly because they just had a kid at the time of recording. <laughs> there, there's some amazing because yeah. they released Vol's album and like a couple of months before this, and then recorded this a bit afterwards. Like the end of 2015 they were doing loads of writing mm. and recording and there's some great images of her while extremely pregnant recording bass for the whole album it's <laughs> amazing which is pretty damn metal yeah. um, then we got uh, Leila Abdul-Rath on guitars, vocals and trumpet she's also in the awesome uh, like creepy death metal band Vastum oh like, yeah yeah. so the like 
there's quite a lot with this band. They're in the very incestuous San Francisco weird metal scene. Mm. There's like, quite a lot of cool bands there. You know, stuff like Lord Lord Weird Slalfeg, who are kind of <laughs> sort of Thin Lizzy meets metal. And yeah. Really interesting. And then you've got like Amber Asylum, who I think she might have been in as well at one point, who are very odd kind of like atmospheric uh, music. Mm. And finally, the lineup's completed by Paul Walker on bass and Will Carroll on drums. This is the main reason I was worried about this album originally. Uh, for the first five albums, it always had the same drummer, yeah, and he yeah. really is like the root of holding this together. Uh, so when he was announced he had quit and they brought in a new guy, I was quite concerned the sound mm. might fall apart to some extent. But no, Will Carroll has well and truly stepped up the job and actually almost sounds like the old guy. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. If, if, if I didn't know that Chewie was no longer in the band, um, from the, I've only listened to one song from this, actually. I mm. haven't managed... This is another one which just... There's been a deluge of release and I haven't picked this one yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, this is... Um, <laughs> so this will mainly be Phil's thoughts. But from the one song I have listened to, I could, Chewie could well be there. I wouldn't have been able to tell that he's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, like, the sound... Um, and something that makes Hammers Misfortune quite a weird band is the sound is always a kind of play like sort of slightly odd prog metal structures with two vocalists often trading off. Mm. The thing that's very odd about Hammers Misfortune is they've had loads of different vocalists. So they don't, yeah, yeah. And so, like early albums, it was a pretty much um, even mix of female and male vocals. Uh, the following, like the fourth album, Fields is mainly this really virtuoso female singer and a more of a backing male voice. Now, in the last two albums, Joe Hutton has just taken over as like the main vocalist for it, and we just get little bits of backing female vocals now, mm. just to have to accentuate his lines. But yeah, this, this, like, I think the reason I'm so obsessed with John Cobb is, essentially, he has a weird way of writing that just sounds like him. Between, like, his projects in black metal... Progressive metal vault. You can tell it's his guitaring. There's something. You always can, yeah. Well, it's riffs that you could find somewhere else, like in, in Dead Revolution, the track I've heard of this, and from Locust Years um, and August Angel, which are the albums I really love. Hammers and Misfortune. There are riffs that could almost be thrash riffs. Yeah. Uh, if you just took them out and put them in another song, but there's something a bit weird about them, and it never feels like a thrash song. It feels like this strange progressive song, and you know it's Hammers and Misfortune, and you know it's his guitar playing. Yeah. Although not a ludicrously technical player, he has that ability, which I think is kind of often kind of undervalued, but you can tell it's him soloing. Like yeah. there is something to be said for those bands where you just hear a lead and you're like, I know who mm. I know who is doing that. And his leads are very odd. Like he will try some very weird things, like, rather than being particularly showy. Essentially we've got kind of a similar similarish mix to um the Opeth album where we've got quite quite hefty keyboards and vocals on top of a mm. kind of uh the the sort of tighter rhythm section the keyboards provide a huge amount of the lead melodies in this. So the album intros with the track Velvet Inquisition, which is like a bizarre, like ever-changing track and a, a great showcase of Joe Hutton's voice over, like... John always writes these quite uh, political lyrics. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, they sometimes move between being very um, straightforward on, on the nose, like Cross Out Your Dead from uh, Locust Years, which is just a straight-up rant about people mm. using like deceased soldiers to prove their point. Whereas this one is far more um, kind of metaphorical, and I think the meanings you'd have to dig quite a lot. Like Often, like, you'll never know quite what he means at any point 
but essentially he's depressed about everything and, and, <laughs> and thinks humanity's fucked would be my main takeaway from most of his songs. Like, there seems to be a lot of building around um, the kind of, lots of songs referencing the gentrification of San Francisco and how mm. that's wrecked the music scene. And then lots of more kind of political rants about lack of caring from the governments and so on. Like, quite American, like, America-centric. There's a real, like, Americana kind of vibe to a lot of these riffs. To be fair, it is pretty mad in San Francisco. It's now the most expensive place to live in America. Mm. Uh, I was there this summer, and like I think the average flat or something is four thousand pounds a month, which yeah. is which is mad. So maybe yeah, he has a point. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like it makes London rents look sensible. It's, yeah. it's kind of yeah. incredible. And yeah, there's a lot of lamenting that effectively San Francisco has had a great music scene since the sixties, yeah, yeah. and it's finally falling apart because. Like hipsters are just no taking one, over the well, and, and no one who can't isn't paid a huge salary can afford to be there. Yeah, they quite a good um, way they've done of sort of illustrating this in a kind of a weird rant is um, the final track, Days of Forty Nine, is a an old kind of um, a folk song, um, essentially about the kind of way um, after the gold rush, all these. Like, is it's a guy retelling his story of like being in the gold rush and how all his friends are now dead and gone. And yeah, they sing this straight up. Kind of, they've turned into quite a long doom version. <laughs> the, the lyrics are straight up, but yeah, they've they've like dragged this out. Like normally, it's about a three minute long song, and mm. this this version is eight minutes long, and oh, wow. it actually gets quite heavy in places. It's a really amazing. They're really amazing cover piece. Like these Excellent. guys are very good at covers. There's a great version of um, Freebird they have online that just goes all kinds of weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's with the Fields lineup. But yeah, this it was a really good close of the album, and you can tell like the kind of the illusion of the gold rush to effectively the end of San mm. Francisco's amazing artistic scene. How do you think it compares to the more recent re- or the most recent releases and other releases by Hammers of Misfortune? So I always sound like 17th Street was actually the point when that came out was when I got into them. But I've mm. always felt 17th Street was a bit of a disappointing release. It was a bit too mellow. Yeah. And this, because it's got the same vocalists on it, does sound similar to it. But they've just made it heavier. They've just made it weirder. And I felt this is a real step up from that album. Excellent. Essentially, they've morphed the sound quite a lot. Like, they don't sound anything like the Locust Years band anymore. Or mm. even Fields, for that matter. Fields is quite a kind of unique release in itself. Mm. So they, they've definitely sort of moved direction. But, again, actually, a lot like Opeth, there is a hell of a lot of leanings towards old 70s, like, prog and yeah, also sixties prog as well. Like the the keyboards. When I say keyboards, it's like lots of hammered organ and yeah, yeah. We're getting in the track I've listened to. The guitar tone really feels reminiscent of like seventies, eighties traditional metal. As uh, it's it's quite thin, but it just has that sort of classic nostalgia type feel to it, mm. which is weird when paired with how strange the songwriting is and just how the riffs sort of seem normal and then aren't quite. Yeah, John Cobb's worth following on Twitter because you just he keeps sharing his incredible record collection, whatever he's listening to, <laughs> which does just seem to vary all over the place. And yeah, yeah there's a lot of love for like Uriah Heep and then more mm. even like more mm. middle of the road old rock bands, and but then also like really into like the new Vector album and so on. Yeah, so yeah. I think all these influences are like clashing together in this and just making, well, yeah, just essentially another really unique prog metal band. Mm. Um, so. The song we're going to play from this is the one um, Rob's heard. This is Dead Revolution. Essentially, it's more of a straight-up Hammer song. Um, 
there's nothing too weird in it. We don't get the um, the kind of weirdness of like here comes the sky with strange trumpet outro, which is <laughs> really bizarre. Or flying alone, where I swear it doesn't sound like it's Joe Hutton singing, but no one else is listed <laughs> on the vocals. So yeah, his voice like suddenly switches for a whole song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, essentially a quite a punky number, kind of reminiscent of the song uh, Train from Church of Broken Glass. Whereas Crane kind of sucked because their vocalist just couldn't do it. Whereas Joe can actually do this kind of yeah. fast, punky voice quite well. Whereas normally he's kind of a more um, mid-range singer. He's like got this like very melodic, um, and it kind of sounds like a vocalist of a folk band. I don't know. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. I don't know how you quite qualify that, really. It's, like. it's yeah, it's tricky. But he definitely sounds unique, just like we were saying about John Corbett's guitar playing. You definitely know it's him, and no one really has the same vocal style as Ocean, not Ocean of Slumber. No, Hammers of Misfortune. Hammers of Misfortune, yeah. Had. Yeah, they sort of, they've always varied it up album to album and, and just seem to keep in this kind of unique bubble. Um, yeah, watch out. I say he's a mid range vocalist. Watch out on this track, though, for him doing an incredible, like, Led Zeppelin esque scream. Yeah, yeah. Also, rare metal song that uses a cowbell for yeah, most quite, of the beat. Quite a lot of cowbell in this.
thing we're going to cover on uh, this week's episode. Uh, we'll do the other five, like uh, um, five to one, uh, on the next release. Essentially, me and Rob are recording them back to back, but as I yeah. said, split it up. Um, <laughs> something that might become a fairly regular feature and possibly needs its own jingle. This is um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be Phil's nepotism corner. Uh, essentially, I have a lot of fan- a lot of friends who are in really good bands. But I can't be trusted to judge them because they're my friends. It's just tricky to reveal your friends. Yeah. So, essentially, we'll be giving a bit of information and plugging a song from releases like Friends Have Done. And the first of this is um, a friend of mine, Gareth, has recently formed a band called The Fascinators, who are, like, bizarre kind of, like, progressive sort of thrash and heavy metal riffs with a really kind of like post-punk singer. Yeah, it's, it's quite nice to have this after Hammers of Misfortune in a way. Like it, It's got that idea, I just listened to the track before, and the, I thought, ah, this kind of sounds like a thrash riff, and then the vocals come in, and like, ah, this doesn't sound like thrash at all, <laughs> at all anymore, but it's got this really nice driving guitar riff underneath it. Yeah, essentially what they've done is taken a kind of um, sort of base of very metal and progressive riffs, and I think a lot of them were originally very long songs that have been edited down into these kind of like three or four minute pop structures mm. with the, these very clean um, female vocals over the top. Um, the band is uh, at the point of recording their first EP, which is, um, I think it's for free download on Bandcamp. Um, first EP is called Blam, and the cover is a like splatter of lime green and black, which looks really <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so the the... Lineup for this album was Emily on vocals, Hal on bass, and like this guy's an awesome bass player. The bass sound is really good from the little bit I've just listened to. It really stands out. Yeah, and then Gareth, who's playing guitar and programming drums for this. Although, really good job of programming drums. I wouldn't have been able to tell those were programmed actually. They have since uh, releasing this fleshed out into a full lineup, so are actually touring with an extra oh, guitarist and a drummer. Like, definitely want to catch them live at some point. Yeah, so the song we're going to play from this is the second track of the album. It's called Common Transaction. And I think the interesting point about this is apparently Emily wrote it by just singing along to a click track and then sent out the file of just like the vocal melody. And then Gareth wrote like the guitars to go under that. Which yeah, is, from, from the top down, it's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. it's quite kind of a, a not a way you'd often imagine metal songs to be uh, recorded. So yeah, this is a common transaction.
wings and exile to its ends Caress and embrace both become a crutch On which they start to depend And if ardor abandons their body Then what can they do but pretend? Exchanging some contact for closeness Is a bargain they learn to befriend I'll find a known course of action Have it grow in my brain Drive me to distraction And I'll do common transaction Clinging on to chemical reaction If for a kiss I can buy a moment I'll crush my pride and I'll pay One little kiss can show what's unspoken Too deeply hidden Life can show what's 